Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. in the first chapter of the book of Philippians, so you can turn there. Turn to verse 7 of that chapter. That's where we will begin this morning. Paul is in the midst of some introductory remarks to the Christians, uh, saints as he calls them, uh, to the Christians in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a city about 10 miles off the coast of what we would call Eastern Greece. Um, it was called Macedonia back then. Uh, Paul preached there and in doing so established a core group of believers which became the foundation of the church at Philippi. Though he experienced some hardship uh, there, uh, he, he was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. Uh, so, so though he had some hardship there, his remembrance of, of Philippi, as we see in this letter, were all positive and, you know, induced joy in him. Joy because of the good work for Christ that the Philippians were carrying out. For Paul, his state of mind was not so much tied to his own personal comfort, but to how the kingdom of God was being advanced through what what he was doing and how Christ was being glorified. So despite the fact that Paul was under house arrest as he wrote this letter to the Philippians and possibly chained to a guard, according to some scholars, and, and possibly even facing a death sentence at the whims of a flawed you know, Roman justice system. Uh, despite all that, this letter exudes an extraordinary amount of joy. Um, it's a remarkably positive and upbeat letter, despite the circumstances under which it was written. So, with that introduction, let's read the first part of our passage this morning. We'll be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Quote, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Unquote. As I said, Paul is in the midst of some personal introductory remarks to the Philippians in this part of uh, the epistle. These remarks lead up to a prayer in verse 9, which concludes the introductory remarks. First, though, let's look at verse 7, which is leading up to verse 9, obviously. Uh, He says, um, Well, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. Unquote. When Paul writes, feel this way about you, um, he's referring back to uh, verses 4 and 5 where he said that he always prayed with joy because of uh, the partnership of the Philippians in the gospel and and their fellowship in the gospel, their koinonia in the gospel. We looked at that word in our previous study. Um, And we looked at how for Christians in general, this word fellowship, translated fellowship, uh, partnership, it's, uh, in the Greek, it's the word koinonia. 
This word denotes the close tie that uh, believers have because we are in the body of Christ. Um, Paul speaks specifically of this partnership and fellowship with the Philippians at the end of verse 7, saying, quote, And whether I am in chains or, defend, or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, unquote. The Philippians expressed their fellowship, you know, their partnership with Paul in very tangible and practical ways. They supported uh, Paul's ministry financially. And they even sent someone to him, a man named Epaphroditus, uh, to help take care of his needs while he was under house arrest in Rome. So because of this, because the Philippians were very active in their support of Paul and his ministry, Paul tells them, hey, all of you share in God's grace with me. This, shall we say, extra measure of grace that Paul received from God as he went about his ministry, as he uh, persevered through hardships, the Philippians shared in that grace because of the active ways in which they supported Paul. The Philippians didn't just passively rest in the fact that they had this built-in fellowship with Paul by virtue of their being part of the church body. No, they went beyond that and took seriously this partnership that we all have as Christians, and they actively supported Paul in his needs as he ministered the gospel, you know, all over the world. Um, they supported him both financially and physically. They gave him financial aid, and then they also sent Epaphroditus to take care of his needs. So we also should take seriously this partnership that we have with other Christians as the body of Christ and actively participate in furthering the kingdom of God together, uh, both financially and physically. Um, I don't like the translation of the word in the NIV share in this verse as a verb. There's no verb for share in that verse in the original Greek. The word is actually a noun. And so I would rather it be translated as a noun and say something like, you are all partakers with me of grace, as the New King James Version uh, puts it. Or other translations have it, you, all, you are all partners with me. Uh, yeah, I know I'm being a bit nitpicky, but there is a slightly diff different connotation when the noun is used rather than the verb. With the noun, to me, it sounds more like the Philippians are true partners with Paul. And in fact, the root of the word that I would translate, you know, sharers with Paul uh, is the root of that word is the same root that, um, you know, from which the word koinonia is derived from. It's koinonos in the Greek. But Paul tacks on a prefix, sig, S-Y-G, which means uh, with, or, or it can be a prefix that roughly means co, as in co-sharer. I guess you could translate it co-sharer, even. Um, the bottom line is that the word unites closely Paul and the Philippians in the work that Paul is doing. They are co-sharers with him. Um, they are united with him in his defending and confirming the gospel, his preaching of the gospel. And they are also even united with him in his chains, in his imprisonment for the cause of the gospel. By saying this, by lumping in the fact that his captivity is also part of their partnership with him, Paul was letting them know in a subtle way that his imprisonment was part of his Christian mission. 
Paul wanted the Philippians to know that his imprisonment was just as much the work of God as his preaching of the gospel was. So Paul lumps both things together, his preaching and his imprisonment, and he says, hey, you know, you Philippians are sharers with me in, in all of these things, you know, whether I'm defending and confirming the gospel or, or in chains. Uh, so difficult outward circumstances don't necessarily imply the absence of God's grace. On the contrary, God often uses us through our suffering to, to um, further his kingdom. At times, even in our suffering, we further his kingdom. Our, you know, when we show that we have reliance on God in our suffering, you know, and our ability to be at peace in our suffering can be a powerful witness to others for the strength of our faith in God. Certainly, the fact that all of the apostles suffered in the early days of Christianity is a powerful witness for the truth of Christianity. The fact that nearly all of the early apostles went to their deaths proclaiming the truth of the gospel has been a powerful witness down through the ages, uh, you know, testifying to the truth of the gospel. So Paul wanted to make clear to the Philippians that his imprisonment, his chains, was an integral part of his ministry, just as much as when he defended and confirmed the gospel. In fact, his chains served to strengthen his defense and confirmation of the gospel. The fact that Paul could joyfully and relentlessly preach the gospel, even though he was in chains, strengthened the content of his message. It gave power to his preaching. And in fact, it seems that Paul never met a prison guard that, you know, did not eventually become a believer. Recall recall the prison guard in Philippi after the earthquake. Um, who begged Paul with the question, what must I, what must I do to be saved? And, and then here, as Paul uh, writes from Rome, there are indications in this epistle that at least some of his prison guards did become believers. At the end of the letter in uh, Philippians chapter 4, Paul sends greetings to those who, quote, are... Uh, those who belong to Caesar's household, unquote. And this may have been a reference uh, to the prison guards who, you know, worked for Caesar. So, uh, idiomatically, Paul is possibly referring to them there as those who belong to Caesar's household. So, as we see, Paul's suffering brought him to circumstances where he could reach people with the gospel whom otherwise he would have no opportunity to reach. Certainly, if Paul had not been imprisoned, Odds are that he would not have met these prison guards and not had the opportunity to reach them for Christ. So God may use our suffering not only as a way for us to demonstrate an attitude of peace through suffering, but but also as a way to put us into contact with those whom we may not normally have contact with while, you know, while living in comfort, I guess. Paul expresses his deep appreciation and love for the Philippians as partners with him in his service to God. In verse 8, let's read that. Quote, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, unquote. Let me note here Paul's use of the phrase, all of you, in this first chapter. It's quite noticeable. He does it quite a bit. Verse 1, he says, to all God's holy people at Philippi. Uh, Verse 4, he says, in all my prayers for all of you. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Verse 7 again, all of you share in God's grace with me. Then here in verse 8, I long for all of you. 
This is part of a running theme in the book of Philippians about unity within the body of Christ and within the Philippian church itself. Thus the emphasis earlier on their fellowship, their koinonia with Paul in the gospel. There's an extended instruction about unity in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that. Quote, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others, unquote. So in that passage, Paul says, you know, be one in spirit and of one mind and look to the interests of others. It seems that Paul had some reason to worry in this regard with respect to the Philippian church because there was some sort of dispute going on. We learn that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. That's part of Paul's greetings and, you know, uh, specific messages to people in the Philippian church. Here's what he says in Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3, quote, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, unquote. So there were some women who... Some women who even had contended at Paul's side in his ministry, as it says, uh, yet they were having some sort of dispute. So Paul masterfully works this theme of unity, you know, in throughout the epistle, emphasizing to the Philippians everything that they have in common as fellow believers in Christ and as members of the church body. Uh, And, you know, eventually towards the end, he actually applies this, uh, you know, teaching about unity by encouraging those who are contending with each other or having some sort of spat or rift, or rift, I guess you would say. Uh, you know, he's encouraging them to you know, put those things aside uh, as believers uh, in the body of Christ. Moving on, back to our passage today. Paul says um, in verse 8 that he longs for the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus. That phrase affection of Christ Jesus, in the original Greek, it's a little bit more vivid. The King James Version translates it more literally. Here's what Paul says uh, from that translation. Quote, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ, unquote. Uh, to us, the phrase in the bowels might sound a bit disgusting, I guess. I <laughs> know. Uh, so you can see why maybe the NIV translated that word like like they did, affection. Um, let's look at that phrase more closely and see what it meant to the hearers at that time. Uh, there are two related words in the Greek regarding the inner body parts, I guess you'd call it. There's cardia, which is nearly always translated heart, which makes sense. You know, we get our uh, prefix cardio from that. Then there's splachnon which is this word, uh, which can be translated bowels or intestines. Uh, 
And this word has a symbolic meaning too, just as heart does. The bowels in the Hebrew culture meant, and this is where Paul was coming from, uh, it meant, uh, quoting from Strong's here, quote, the seat of the tenderer affections, especially kindness, benevolence, and compassion, unquote. This is maybe closer to our cultural meaning of the word heart, I guess, uh, strictly denoting affections. On the other hand, heart or cardia, uh, when it's used in the Greek, meant to them, according from Strong's, quote, the center and seat of spiritual life, the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors, unquote. So for that culture, heart was an all-encompassing, you know, kind of feeling, all-encompassing of the entire internal life, all of the internal, you know, spiritual thoughts and attitudes uh, are part of that word heart or cardia. So when you see the word heart in the New Testament, that's what it means. So when Paul says that he longs for them in the bowels of Christ, he's saying in a very graphic way that he has tender affection for them, believe it or not. That's a strange way for us in English to express that. I don't know that we would all appreciate that. Uh, But that's what it meant back then. Uh, and, and that this tender affection stems from his innermost being. It stems from even, you know, his bowels. And, you know, his affection for them is the same as that which Christ feels for them uh, from Christ's innermost being, because it says he longs for them in the bowels of Christ. So it's a very strong and graphic expression of his, ex- uh, you know, his, of his affection for them. Uh, and, and this is somewhat lost in the translation. I hope I didn't ruin your breakfast or anything by talking about that. Um, so this was a, uh, it was such a strong statement by Paul that he, you know, he accompanied it effectively, effectively with an oath saying this, quote, God can testify how I long for all of you in the bowels of Christ, unquote. This, this again adds to the expression of deep feeling that Paul had for the Philippians uh, it's a very strong declaration of his love for them. And it's a sincere love because God, who sees our hearts and, and our bowels in this case, I guess, because God can testify to it, as Paul says. Now, one of the best ways to express our love for others is to pray for them. And so that's what Paul does next, uh, beginning in verse 9. Let's read verses 9 through 11. Quote, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God." Note that Paul doesn't pray for the Philippians concerning material prosperity or worldly prosperity or or even physical strength and health. Rather, he prays solely for spiritual blessings here. We should all pray, I think, primarily for spiritual riches uh, for those whom we are praying for, not just for, you know, the physical things that we tend to gravitate to towards in our prayers. So here Paul prays concerning the love of the Philippians, that their love may grow and that their love may have certain ramifications, certain effects. 
Love is certainly an appropriate subject of prayer. We all need it, and we all need more of it. Robert Johnstone, a scholar from the 1800s, 19th century, here's what he wrote, quote, Love is the grand, sanctifying, ennobling, and beautifying principle of the Christian soul, unquote. So, really, love is the acting out of our obedience to God. As Christ taught us, all of the law hangs on love. The two greatest commandments which sum up the law are love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is necessary for this close fellowship and partnership, you know, this communion, this koinonia that that we have as Christians. Um, You know, to be effective, uh, we need to love one another. sharing with each other, giving to each other, exerting ourselves for each other, truly and in practice bearing each other's burdens. We need, and you know, to do these things, to effectually carry out these things, we need love. Loving others just as God loved us, just as Christ demonstrated his love for us. Love, as Paul says in Romans 13, 8, is a continuing debt that we all bear a debt to God that we can never fully repay. Paul focuses his prayer on love because the growth of a Christian can be measured by the growth of his or her love. Paul is not content with just the status quo, either in his life or the lives of his Christian brothers and sisters. So Paul prayed back here in Philippians that the love of the Philippians would grow uh, you know, would abound more and more. If you think about it, love, I think, is never static, is it? I mean, love is either growing or shrinking. Mostly shrinking, I think, unfortunately. The key and the need that we all have is to figure out how to make our love grow, make our love abound more and more, as Paul says. After all, we, we can never have too much love. For Paul, uh, it seems that it's something he always desires more of and that he he never has enough. No matter how much progress we make as Christians, there's always more to be done, especially in the subject of love. Paul channels the growth of their love, uh, asking that it it abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Uh, for Paul, love is not a mindless mirror, you know, a mere emotion. It's a love based on knowledge and depth of insight, as he says in that prayer. And certainly our love for God grows through increased knowledge of him, increased knowledge of his ways, his grace, his plan, his wisdom. Likewise, our love for others increases as we gain more knowledge concerning God's love for us. When we truly realize how much God loves us in spite of our failings, we are better prepared to love others. Love that is based on feelings and emotions will fade away, but love that is based on knowledge and depth of insight can abound more and more, as Paul asks. Also, love that is based on knowledge is correct love, loving the right things for the right reasons in the right way. So often, love that is based solely on our feelings and emotions leads us to love the wrong things for the wrong reasons in a wrong and selfish way. So Paul prays that their love would grow, 
but not just grow, but to grow within the proper constraints uh, with a love based on knowledge and depth of insight. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the danger of knowledge without love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And then later, in the same epistle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, Paul says, quote, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing, unquote. So when we have a knowledge that is devoid of love, that knowledge has no value. On the contrary, it can be harmful. Just as Paul said, knowledge puffs up. But knowledge can have a positive effect when accompanied by love and actually causes our love to abound more and more. Knowledge with love serves its goal, and the result can be that love multiplies. As I said, knowledge of God and and His grace and His ways, etc., serves to increase our love for God. We also need more wisdom in order to love our brothers and sisters more effectively. We need knowledge and wisdom, or as Paul puts it, knowledge and depth of insight in order to effectively love others. Love needs to know how best to serve others, how best to minister to their needs. It's not always an easy question to answer as to how to best serve others and how to best love others. It's not obvious at times. Should I do this or that for him? Should I offer to do that? Should, should I give my money to this ministry or to that one? Should I spend my time doing this? Is, is this an, an effective use of my time in my attempt to serve others and, and to love others? So it's not obvious. It, and it often is not obvious. Um, we need knowledge. We need wisdom. And we need depth of insight to help us out in loving effectively. Here's how G. Walter Hansen, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. Here's how he put it. Quote, Without insight, love does not know how to express itself with actions and words that are appropriate to each situation of life. Often love asks the question, I desire to love these people with such great needs, but what should I say and do to meet their needs? Only by insight does love have the direction to act wisely in ways that give healing, joy, and life to those who are loved, unquote. So we see that this is quite an appropriate prayer applicable to all of us that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. The desired result of such a love is what Paul prays for next when he says, quote, in order that we may discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, unquote. The discernment spoken of here is in line with what I was saying before. We need knowledge and insight, knowledge and wisdom, in order to discern the best way to exercise our love for others. The best way to, you know, as Walter Hansen said above, the best way to act wisely in ways that give healing, joy, and life to those who are loved, unquote. Discernment is needed when love is practiced. Love showing love, expressing the love of God to others, knowing the best way to act in love isn't isn't always a clear-cut and straightforward thing. Love seeks 
what is best for others. But many times, what is best is not always obvious to us. Sometimes there are multiple options which compete for the quote-unquote right way to act in love towards others. All of us who have kids well know that at times the best way to act in love is with tough love, with a form of love that, you know, the receiver might not always view as love. Our goal in love should always be clear, though, and that is to show love in a way that would, you know, most please, honor, and glorify God. So then it's absolutely necessary in order to do so, in order to know how to love correctly, uh, to show love effectively, such that God is glorified through our acts of love, we need to pray. Seek the guidance of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in order to get this knowledge and wisdom and discernment which is so necessary in living a life of love, a life that reflects the love of Christ. Such love, wisely deployed, will result in purity and blamelessness. As Paul says here, he prays that the Philippians may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, unquote. There are moral pitfalls with practicing love, especially when an act of love is directed towards someone of the opposite sex, I guess. In such situations, of course, great care needs to be taken because the last thing you want to do as a Christian would be, you know, that a genuine act of Christian love morph itself into a situation that would dishonor God. So, of course, wisdom and discernment are needed, always seeking God as to the best way to proceed. It is the way of the world and the way of Satan, frankly, to contaminate in some way our Christian love. Our world is a world of contamination, of entropy, of order turning to disorder, of purity turning to impurity. So just as this happens physically in the world, it certainly uh, has a tendency to occur with respect to spiritual matters. The world seeks that the pure turns impure and that the holy becomes unholy and that Christian love be tainted. So Paul prays for continued purity and blamelessness for the Philippians, even until the day of Christ. It's something we need to continually seek, I think, until the day of Christ. It's a continued hazard in our lives that our Christian holiness be tainted by the world, that our acts of Christian love be sullied in some way by the world. So this is the prayer of Paul for the Philippians. And it's a worthy prayer. It's a prayer that we ourselves should pray, uh, even for ourselves, that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight in order that we may discern what is best and be kept pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You know, that we should have a love that's not deceitful, not hypocritical, not ambiguous, coming from our hearts, not just from a sense of duty, inspired by true Christian motives, and not for our glory, but for God's glory, not for our self-interest, but to further the kingdom of God, not an unholy love, but a Christ-like love, not to receive praise from others, but that God would be praised in every encounter that we have with others, both Christians and non-Christians, that we you know, would seek to have an aura of love around us, the fragrance of the love of Christ permeating our lives and reaching the lives of others.
We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling. All rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.